Nuclear weapons. Didn't we deal with those in the 50s and 60s? Ah, uh, sadly, they're still with us. Arsenals of 15,000 world-shattering nuclear or atomic, if you prefer that languaging, bombs on hair-trigger alert, ready to be launched with guaranteed destruction of not only whatever they're targeting, but of life on Earth itself. And getting rid of nuclear weapons may seem too enormous a task for any one person to make a difference. But that's when you need to hear from a genuine international expert from Don't Bank on the Bomb, telling you about what they do. And then she explains... We examine the impact of the financial sector on companies that produce nuclear weapons. We name those companies, name them and shame them. And we encourage people to get in touch with their financial institutions so that they develop policies so that they don't have any exposure to these companies that do produce the key components for nuclear bombs. Well, that sounds easy enough. And it is. And it's effective, empowering, it's working around the world, and it shows us that maybe, just maybe, there might be a way to ease out of that uncomfortable seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, two special interviews. We talk with Susie Snyder of Pax Netherlands, the peace and justice group behind the international Don't Bank on the Bomb campaign that is rapidly taking the financial props out from under the nuclear weapons industry. You'll learn not only what they're doing, but how you can participate and why you must. And it's official! The Three Mile Island nuclear reactor is closing as of September 30th of this year. We'll catch up with Eric Epstein of TMI Alert on the failure of the Pennsylvania bailout bill and how the battle hasn't ended, it has just shifted gears. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than you'll ever read in Forbes. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 15, 2019, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off with the news that, yes, the nail is in the coffin of Three Mile Island Unit 1. The proposed bailout of the failing nuclear reactor did not pass the Pennsylvania legislature. So you'd think that Eric Epstein, veteran head of Three Mile Island Alert, would be dancing the happy dance. Instead, well, you'll hear it from him. 
Here is a brief update that we recorded on Friday, May 10, 2019. First of all, Eric, congratulations on the failure of the bailout of Three Mile Island and the announced closure by September 30th of this year. How did you feel when you heard the news? Well, I was kind of ambivalent. I hate to say it. It's been a real long road. It's been, uh, you know, 40 years, and uh, Three Mile Island was part of a bigger bailout package. So um, it became clear that Exelon, the company that owned TMI, um, just didn't have the votes. They dropped the legislation too late, and this is a different state than the other states where bailouts have occurred. So uh, a number of factors came together. It was clear, I thought, almost probably when you were back visiting us in March, that they were going to struggle to get this done on time. The thing that makes me, and why I say ambivalent rather than uh, encouraged, is that prior to announcing the shutdown of the plant, uh, the company announced that they were going to go into Safe Store, which is the same a mode we have at TMI2, the uh, plant that was involved in the accident, and that's been in mothballs for 40 years. They want to put TMI1 in mothballs for 60 years, so um, got a huge lift ahead of us. We've got to make sure the plant is cleaned up in a timely fashion. If it's not, that means TMI2 won't be cleaned up until at least 2074, 2075, which, if you do the math, is 100 years after the accident. In addition to that, Exelon has petitioned the NRC to raid the decommissioning fund and use some of the decommissioning funds to uh, build uh, dry chaos storage. So, you know, the news was, was welcome and not unexpected, but just from here, uh, Libby, you know, the pivot is to yet another heavy lift. If we don't contest the uh, mothballing of the plant or uh, raiding of the decommissioning funds, we may be facing a situation where uh, – the island is not cleaned up for some time to come. As you explained in our interview, which was heard on Nuclear Hot Seat number 405 from March 26, there were many factors involved with this bailout bill and reasons coming against the bailout bill that were unique to Pennsylvania, yeah. but were not necessarily applicable to other states where bailouts are currently being debated, specifically Ohio, which is the one right. that comes up most recently. What's the difference between the two? Well, Pennsylvania is the second largest gas producing state. So gas has created an environment where we have very low and relatively plentiful uh, energy. And we export about 30% of our electricity, uh, mostly to New York and Maryland, which is banned fracking. So we've seen a reduction in the last 20 years of our electric prices from being 15% above the national average to just under 15% below. So that, that's a huge driver. The other states have had Democratic legislatures. Pennsylvania has a very conservative Republican uh, legislature. Both houses are controlled by Republicans, most who are opposed to free market. Third, you know, gas is viewed differently here because gas is taking away from coal, which is a positive, but that also created tension because Trump won this state based on the coal vote. So the coal vote also wanted a bailout. There was Real interesting. So you had a very significant gas lobby, a very significant coalition, anywhere from us to ARP to gas to oil opposing this. A governor who was unlike Cuomo in New York, who was really decidedly neutral. And what happened actually was, and the, probably the biggest mistake Exxon made is they said four years ago they would need a bailout. They didn't drop the legislation to March. And if you know anything about Pennsylvania, 
dropping legislation in March and expecting it to pass by May, you might as well book a seat on Fantasy Airlines. Um, <laughs> it just wasn't reality. And what's worse for these guys is that they burned a lot of bridges. They had the largest number of uh, lobbyists in Pennsylvania political history, up to 32 different firms, Libby. So it's still a coal and steel state. It still has that mentality. And when you come in here and try to pull the wool over legislators, it just it didn't work. I mean, it hasn't been out, voted out of committee, either piece of legislation in the House or the Senate. I'm not really sure where you know the rest of the Commonwealth goes from here. I think our next big challenge is in August and see if Beaver Valley can clear the PJM auction. But, you know, Exelon losing at TMI is huge. Symbolically, everybody knows TMI. Exelon is the biggest dog on the street. Just a lot of things going on uh, that conspired to beat back the bailout. But I think it would be folly for any of us to um, put our guard down. The goal has always been to clean the plan up. And it just looks like a heavy lift. And as you know, it's a bipolar plant. You got Exelon at Unit One, First Energy at TMI, and they're two, and they're bankrupt. So, for the moment, it's a relief. I guess that's the best way to put it. But there's, we're going to have to apply pressure. We'll be back in the legislature next week. Is that what's next for you and TMI Alert? Yeah, yeah, we'll go in. We'll probably. Add- well, we won't probably. We will ask sponsors of the legislation to remove their names. The political calculus doesn't look good for the nuclear industry. They needed South Central Pennsylvania conservative Republicans to get the legislation over the hurdle. With TMI not being on the table, I don't see these guys supporting a bailout for Philly or Pittsburgh or the western or eastern part of the state. It's very parochial out here. So I just want to strike while the iron's hot, uh, get some commitments. They will too. I mean, uh, Libby, you don't hire 32 firms and just walk away. So they'll be here as well. Uh, And I know in the Senate they're trying to get some amendments. In the House, uh, Representative Matsey may be looking at something. He's got his plan is in Beaver Valley. So it's a big win. It's a big W, but still a long way to go. Here's a little bit of paranoia. As regular listeners to this show know, the announced closure of a nuclear reactor is not necessarily the same as an actual shutdown. What, if anything, might happen between now and September 30th of this year, the announced date, that would stop, reverse, or delay TMI's shutdown? Oh, I think this is final. It is. I mean, you just went through a whole emotional week uh, not only just saying TMI is going to shut down, but it derails the bailout bill. Attention is focused elsewhere, Libby. It's you got to get the budget done by June 30th. We have serious transportation funding issues, serious education issues, serious pension issues. It's not over till it's over. And of course, Belfont and TVA is a good example of a plant that was mothballed and kept out of the mothballs. The workers are already being uh, repositioned. You know, they have jobs for most of the workers within their fleet. Exxon has Limerick and Peach Bottom very close by, and then Calvert Cliffs over the border in Maryland. They did shut down Oyster Creek, but they got a couple of plants up in New York. So I think it's good to have a healthy paranoia, but I think this puppy's done. For us, the bigger issue is we'd like to clean up to proceed expeditiously so we could use the skill sets and the institutional memory we have. I think if they uh, mothball the plant, they ain't coming back. And about any state, Pennsylvania knows what happens. We've had this huge tragedy with anthracite and bituminous coal. You know, once they took the coal from the ground, the companies left. I think we're going to see it at TMI. We need to get dry cast built. 
Uh, we need to prevent them from raiding the decommissioning fund. Look, anything's possible. Uh, we, we've seen that before. You always remain guarded. And I, I think it's good to have what I would say is a healthy amount of paranoia. Well, putting the healthy amount of paranoia <laughs> aside, what have you done to celebrate? Uh, nothing. We just worked straight through, actually. Uh, I have set up meeting. Next week we'll be meeting uh, with a number, just setting up meetings. I mean, just nothing. We'll actually later today be aggressively petitioning the NRC on the decommissioning front. But I'll be honest with you, Libby, and you know me, um, just right back at it. You know, everything for me is a football schedule. We had a big win over Michigan, and we got Michigan State next week. Well, I'm wishing you many touchdowns, many <laughs> intercepts. Uh, I'm, I'm losing it because I don't know that many football analogies. That's I okay. W- all the good ones is what I wish you. You Thank have done you. prodigious work on Three Mile Island issues for, what is it now, more than 40 years because you were with yeah. the group when it was started? For me, it's about 40. For Kay, it's 42. I mean, we had our last meeting, and as I, you know, I'm fond of saying, it was like an ARP gathering. A lot of bald heads and gray hair. Well, <laughs> there are always wigs, there's always hair coloring, and hopefully longevity runs in the anti-nuclear <laughs> movement. Eric Epstein of Three Mile Island Alert. Even if you're not celebrating, I am. The shutdown is scheduled for the day after my 70th birthday, and I'm going to be dancing the happy dance. And I All hope right. you can join me in it even from a distance. All right. Congratulations, and we'll talk to you soon, Levy. That was Eric Epstein of Three Mile Island Alert continuing to be vigilant. Moving on to other news. A school in Ohio has been forced to close down for the remainder of the academic year after enriched uranium and neptunium-237, a byproduct of nuclear reaction and plutonium production, were discovered inside the school building. Zahn's Corner Middle School in the town of Piketon is about 80 miles east of Cincinnati. The source of the enriched uranium remains unclear, though some locals have suggested that the nearby Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant, located around two miles from the school, may be to blame. Yeah, think? The facility previously produced enriched uranium, including weapons-grade uranium, for the United States Atomic Energy Program and for use in U.S. nuclear weapons. Uranium enrichment at the site ended in 2001, but radiation is a gift that keeps on giving. And the site is now subject to an environmental cleanup under the supervision of the Department of Energy. Iowa's only nuclear power plant, Duane Arnold Energy Center, is slated to close by the end of 2020. The major reason? It has become outpriced by cheaper energy sources, particularly wind energy, which now provides about a third of Iowa's energy generation. On Tuesday, May 7, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's Atomic Safety and Licensing Board summarily terminated public intervenors' requests for an evidentiary hearing challenging Holtec International's proposed high-level nuclear waste dump in southeastern New Mexico. As one of the interveners in the case, San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace is concerned that, once again, the NRC is protecting the nuclear industry and not the American public. The Northern California group stated in a press release, 
Holtec proposes to store well over 100,000 metric tons of this deadly material in a quote-unquote temporary facility that has not been proven to be safe and that could very well turn into a de facto spent nuclear fuel repository for hundreds of years or even forever. High-level radioactive waste from Diablo Canyon might well be sent to this location for quote-unquote interim storage. And over 200 million U.S. citizens living along transportation routes will be placed in peril. A key annual defense bill is poised to serve as a battleground over Trump's nuclear weapons policy. Issues range from the size of the U.S. nuclear arsenal to whether to leave open the possibility of launching a nuclear first strike. The Trump administration's Nuclear Posture Review, released February 2018, calls for new weapons such as so-called low-yield warheads and a new sea-launched cruise missile. The Congressional Budget Office has estimated that modernizing the nuclear arsenal will cost more than $1 trillion over the next 30 years. Imagine the school supplies and crucial infrastructure that could fund. House Armed Services Committee Chair Adam Smith said he wanted to, quote, kill the low-yield warhead and blasted Trump for casting aside nuclear treaties. Smith, backed by presidential candidate Senator Elizabeth Warren, introduced in January the No First Use Act that would make it U.S. policy to not strike first with nuclear weapons. Over to Japan, where what seems to be good news isn't. In terms of Fukushima radiation... Centers for Research and Treatment of Highly Exposed Patients are being established. But the head of the chief center at the National Institutes for Quantum and Radiological Science and Technology will be Dr. Shunichi Yamashita, otherwise known as Smiley, because he was the one who said, if you smile, radiation won't affect you. Questions abound as to whether these centers are going to provide genuine treatment for the victims or whether it's simply going to be used to collect data, as the U.S. did in the Marshall Islands following the bomb tests down there. An excellent article out of Australia on how Fukushima's mothers became radiation experts to protect their children after the nuclear meltdown. We will link to it. In Turkey... Cracks have been discovered during construction of that country's first nuclear plant. Fissures were found last year in the concrete laid for foundations. It was ripped up, the concrete laid again, and cracks have been discovered a second time. Meanwhile, Russian state nuclear energy firm Rosatom, which is building the site, has announced that it was holding private talks to sell as much as 49% of its stake in the project. Radioactive carbon released into the atmosphere from 20th century nuclear bomb tests has reached the deepest parts of the oceans, according to a new study published in the American Geophysical Union's publication, Geophysical Research Letters. We'll have a link to it up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 412. And now... Nuclear Hot Seat, Nuclear Hot Seat, Nuclear Hot Seat, none that's out of week. Forbes and the nuclear industry's favorite shill burger, Michael Schellenberger, are at it again, this time taking on the HBO series Chernobyl to make certain that nobody gets scared by anything that's in it. In a 2,000-word, that's pretty hefty, article entitled The reason they fictionalize nuclear disasters like Chernobyl is because they kill so few people. 
Note how his major talking point is in the headline, so that no matter who searches when for Chernobyl articles, this is what they're going to see, even if they don't read it. In this article, he not only takes on any fear people might be experiencing as a result of witnessing what a nuclear reactor disaster can actually do, but enlists the creative force behind this series in helping him. In quoting Chernobyl writer-director Craig Mazin, he said, The lesson of Chernobyl isn't that modern nuclear power is dangerous. The lesson is that lying, arrogance, and suppression of criticism are dangerous. Later saying that, I am pro-nuclear, and agreeing with a tweet that said Chernobyl could not happen in the U.S. Ah, there's your mental valium. Because, hey, Everybody knows that the United States is immune to nuclear disasters, that radiation holds no risks, and if you bother to educate yourself with the truth of, oh, Kate Brown's book, Manual for Survival, about what really happened health-wise in the wake of Chernobyl and is still happening today, you're just a weird old hippie fuss budget worthy of derision and a laugh track. Schilberger specializes in articles like this, and Forbes loves to publish him because Steve Forbes, as I've said many times on this show, is heavily invested in nuclear. So if you've got a publication, let's protect the investment, okay? What really gripes me, though, is the update at the end of this article, where Chernobyl producer, writer, director, they call him lots of things, but he's the guy behind it, Craig Mazin, responded to Schillenberger's review to say, our show is not going to show birth defects. That's right. Cover it up. Pretend radiation does nothing. Chernobyl did no harm. Only a handful of people died, all of which are lies. We've got the work to prove it. We've got the footnotes to prove it. What we don't have is a shillburger to spew it out on a publication like Forbes, giving this depiction of the disaster no more weight than any other disaster movie out of Hollywood. And that's why this week, Schellenberger, once again, Forbes, yes again, and Mazin, ah, for backtracking in the face of this opposition. You are all this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. As exiled Russian scientist Yuri Bondashevsky says, Chernobyl is not finished, it has only just begun. And this on top of news that drones have found unexpected radiation hotspots in the forest near Chernobyl. It will never end. Read Kate Brown's book, Manual for Survival, to learn the truth not only about what happened at Chernobyl, but what's still happening. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, the pro-nuclear propaganda keeps coming thick and fast, setting up talking points that the casual reader, or legislator, will catch in headlines and absorb as gospel truth when it's really just the opposite. What is there to counter the lies of the nuclear industry? All the money and influence and smug, smarmy talking points? Yeah, I'm pretty heated up this week. That's because while David may have won out over Goliath, sometimes this battle feels impossible. And still, I, we, have persisted. For eight years, Nuclear Hot Seat has been one of the only places where you can get a one-hour hit of honest nuclear information every week. Interviews with genuine experts, a roundup of international news, never enough time for all the stories that deserve it, but still, numbnuts of the week, 
bad puns, sometimes a touch of musical theater. Where else can you find all this in a weekly counterbalance to nuclear industry lies? Of course, the show has been operating for years on a budget that's less than what one nuclear lobbyist gets to spend for one week of lunches with powerful legislators. And our budget is dependent on you, the listeners, to keep us going. Right now, to be honest, finances have been getting pretty thin. So if you are against nukes and want to help get the word out, help us with a donation. It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's where you can send a one-time donation or set up a monthly donation of any size. And to send us a monthly $5, come on, it's the same as a cup of coffee. And it is the lifeblood that sustains this show. Just click on the big green Donate button at NuclearHotSeat.com. Please, do what you can now. And know that whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview, and it's a doozy. Susie Snyder is project lead for the Pax No Nukes Project and coordinates the Don't Bank on the Bomb research and campaign. She is an expert on nuclear weapons, with over two decades of experience working at the intersect between nuclear weapons and human rights. Now, Don't Bank on the Bomb has published their 2018 global report on the financing of nuclear weapons producers. And this is not only another interesting document in PDF form that you promise that you will one day read, it provides a blueprint for how we can leverage money, our money, out of the nuclear weapons industry, and it will make a difference. I spoke with Susie Snyder on Friday, May 10, 2019. Note that there will be a brief, unplanned appearance of a young activist who underscores the reason why we do this work. Susie Snyder, thank you so much for being with us here today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Great to be here. Thanks so much. First of all, what is PAX and what are the organization's goals? Well, PAX is a Dutch peace organization, and what we're doing, we are working to reduce uh, human suffering as a result of conflict. Um, and so to, to prevent war, prevent suffering, uh, and generally to, to make sure that we build norms that keep people safe and keep people alive. What are some of your cornerstone programs. I'm certainly familiar with Don't Bank on the Bomb because I've followed that protocol with my own finances. What is this and how can people participate in it? Don't Bank on the Bomb is a great project um, that is, what we do is we, we do three things. We examine the impact of the financial sector on companies that produce nuclear weapons. We name those companies, name them and shame them, and we encourage people to get in touch with their financial institutions so that they develop policies so that they don't have any exposure to these companies that do produce the key components for nuclear bombs. So it's, it's naming the ones that have investments, it's supporting the ones that have great policies not to invest, and it's, of course, identifying the companies that make the bombs, because if we don't know who's doing it, we don't know what we can do about it. Speaking of those companies, there has just been a new report that came out naming 28 separate companies 
as being involved in the manufacture of nuclear weapons. How did that report come about and what are some of the findings you've made because of it? Well, let me tell you, Libby, it was a good deal of research and we are extremely rigorous in our research. So we've been looking at contracts and announcements for contracts, requests for proposals and so on for the last, uh, for the last six months. Um, and so what we did is as we looked at these, we looked at these different issues and we, sorry, sorry, I, I'm no. sure that many of your listeners also have children. <laughs> and, it's the, they're hearing in the background. <laughs> Susie, this is the reason we do the work that we do for the children and beyond. So this could not be more perfect. <laughs> it is just the reality, you know, working moms everywhere. Um, anyway, so what we did is um, we looked at the contracts, we looked at the, the government plans, different government plans for new types of nuclear weapons, for the weapons that are under these so-called modernization program. And then we looked to see, okay, who's actually doing this in-house, so to speak? Like what, what countries are doing it? There's only nine countries that have nuclear weapons, right? It's not so many at the end of the day. And we look at who does stuff in-house using state-run agencies and who contracts out. Now, not everybody contracts out. Russia does stuff mostly in-house. Uh, North Korea does everything in-house. Pakistan does stuff in-house. But India, um, the US, the UK, France, they all, con they all hire external contractors. So then we follow the money. Who bids on the contracts? Who gets the contracts? And what are they doing? What are they actually doing under these contracts? And that's where we found exciting. Well, it's exciting in, a, in not a nice way, <laughs> to be honest. It's, but we found that, you know, we found over $116 billion in existing contracts right now for keeping nuclear weapons on the planet. And some of them until 2075, which all of these countries have said, the heads of state at one time or another said, no, we need a world without nuclear weapons. And I'll tell you, you don't get to a world without nuclear weapons by hiring Boeing or Raytheon or Lockheed Martin to build a new nuclear arsenal for you. Some of the stories that I've read about coming out from the contracts are truly, it's like going into bizarro land. Uh, give us some examples. For example, when the head of Raytheon was asked if there was a growth opportunity in the U.S. exit from the INF Treaty. So this is really surprising. I mean, okay, usually with nuclear weapons, nobody's really, at least nobody should be really proud to be making nuclear weapons. These are weapons designed to, you know, your listeners will know this already. These are weapons designed to annihilate cities. They're not for battlefields. They're not for strategic pinpoint accuracy. This is a city buster. And that's, I think that's really important to keep in mind. And for the most part, over the last, almost the last generation, people have been shying away from, from taking pride in this, but then there are a few. Um, and there's been a slight change in the rhetoric around this. So when, you know, Donald Trump took office, he asked these questions, why would we have nuclear weapons if we could never use them? And he started saying, well, maybe we need, you know, we need to go back to make more and the biggest and the best weapons. Um, and he's basically inciting an arms race by withdrawing from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, this treaty from 1987 that prohibited an entire class of weapons. He opened the floodgates on this. 
And so in Raytheon, and Raytheon of all companies, Raytheon kind of was getting out of the nuclear arms game. It was seen as a, as a losing interest. But then the withdrawal from the INF came about and they said, oh, wait, we might have an opportunity here, at least in the short term. So you, you saw the investor relations call. They said they were asked the question, oh, yeah, you know, is there any opportunity for us? And over the next quarter, Raytheon got 500 million in new contracts related to missile technology. Um, so Raytheon's starting to cash in on this new nuclear arms race. And I just have to ask the question, what are they, you know, they're only looking for short-term game. What are they looking for in the long term? Because this is not the kind of product that we should be supporting. It's a terrifying thought that nuclear weapons are looked at as a growth industry and an opportunity for investor profits when really their end game is the destruction of everything and their profits will mean nothing. There are other programs that have been brought up in the reading that I've been doing. And another one had to do with Boeing and a new program that the company that brought us the twice-crashed 737 MAX is being asked to develop. What is a flight termination receiver and what are the implications of the attempt to develop it? Okay, so this is something that within the nuclear policy community, there's some debate, right? So the flight termination receiver is, the idea is you, you can call the missile back because it takes about, it takes between 25 and 40 minutes for an intercontinental ballistic missile to be launched and hit its target. And that means that once you press the button, there's, there's two hours until the end of civilization as we know it, because any target, they're going to they're gonna see the incoming missile and they're going to launch in return. They're going to try to take everything out before you take out what they've got. That's the whole, that's, there was this whole concept behind mutually assured destruction. So with what Boeing is doing now is they're making this new missile technology so that if you launch and you decide, oh, wait, whoops, our, our information was wrong. Oh, actually, it was a weather balloon. Oh, no, that wasn't an incoming missile. It was, you know, it was a pigeon. You, whatever it is, and I, I don't mean to make light of it, but seriously, what, there's been so many near misses. It could be anything. The idea is that the missile would then go off course or would, or would self-destruct. So it wouldn't have the same, um, it wouldn't hit its target. So the idea is to be able to, to shift it in flight. Now, on the one hand, you know, this could be great because then it, you know, it won't hit its target and you could, you could stop some insanity. But on the other hand, if you see the missile coming in, you're going to fire with everything you've got. And so it's a losing situation. It's a losing proposition. And honestly, as you said, how much can we trust Boeing right now? It's how much do we trust anybody who is working in nuclear arms because they can somehow justify it. I've also seen that one of the problems with having a flight termination receiver is that it might call for a launch of a weapon and then using it just as a scare tactic because they think, well, we can pull it back and there will be no harm, no foul, when indeed, you're right, the retaliation could be volleyed out before we could pull it back and they might not be able to do so and there goes the planet or if not the planet at least the people and the life forms on it exactly and what we've learned from new climate research from new modeling over the, just the last 10 years is that it doesn't take a thousand bombs going off to destroy the civilization that we that we know it would take a hundred weapons 
between, for example, India and Pakistan and two billion people, two billion people would be at risk of famine. It would cause grave environmental catastrophe. It would, it would be a nuclear winter. And in the 80s, we were totally aware of this. We're like, okay, this is not gonna happen. We're gonna stop it. We're gonna shut this down. This is insane. And right now, it's our time to stand up and say, hey, this is insane. There are so many more things that we could spend the money on. The US government alone is spending $70,000 a minute on producing nuclear weapons, 70,000 a minute. Imagine what $70,000 a minute could do for public education, addressing climate change. The nuclear weapons problem, it's complicated, but it's, it's a relatively easy fix. And it's just a matter of deciding to do it. And now's the time for people to, to demand that we do. You know, you're right. On the one hand, it's a terribly depressing image for those of us who oppose nuclear and have managed to become conscious about it. Yet, in the intertwining of the private sector and nuclear weapons, there are potential points of leverage. Explain what you mean by that. This is what's, what I'm finding is very exciting. So two years ago, most of the, the nations in the world adopted a new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. They said, you know what? This has gone bonkers long enough, and the consequences of any use of nuclear weapons are so grave, we need to prohibit everything to do with them. Prohibit all the making, having, using, preparing to use, pro prohibit it, make it illegal. Make sure that we are collectively responsible if any weapons get used. You know, reinforce the non-proliferation standard by doing so. Protect the environment. This is so most governments in the world said, yes, we're gonna do this. And after that, financial institutions, banks, pension funds, insurance companies, they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If the weapons are illegal, the companies that are making the weapons they're going to start to go down. Let's get out. Let's get out now. Let's prevent any reputational risk or regulatory risk. Let's end our financial involvement with these companies. And 10% of them dropped out. It was amazing. When you said 10% of them dropped out, explain a little more about what that exactly means. We've been doing this kind of analysis of the involvement of the financial sector and nuclear weapon producers for, for a while now, since 2013. And we track every year how many, how many banks and how many financial institutions invest. And from the adoption of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons until a year later, there was a 10% reduction. There's, it's, in actual numbers, there's 30 fewer financial institutions that had investments in the companies that produce nuclear weapons. And some of these are, are really, like this is Blue Cross and Blue Shield that previously had some investments and then got out. This is you know, the Norwegian government pension funds that said, oh, wait a minute, we, we better change our relationship here. This is ABP, which is the fifth largest pension fund in the world. And they said, oh, hang on, nope, nuclear's illegal now, gotta get out of that game, which is quite impressive. And we're putting together the numbers for this year, and I think we're gonna see some, some additional positive change. There's, nope, even though a few companies are starting to make money off of new contracts, 
in most of the world, this is seen as a bad investment. I often think of PACS and the Nobel Peace Prize winning international campaign for the abolition of nuclear weapons, or ICANN, which was behind the treaty in the United Nations, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. I often think of you two as kind of either conjoined or somehow being under the same umbrella. What is the relationship between the two groups? PACS is a partner of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and ICANN is a campaign coalition, and we've got over 500 partners in more than 100 countries around the world. And it was ICANN working with these partnerships, also with with concerned governments, with international organizations like the, the Global Red Cross that got this treaty to happen. It was, it was through partnership. It was through a movement. And PAX is a, is a part of this bigger movement. We're really proud to be a member of this campaign coalition because it means that we're, as we said in the, the local papers here, the Nobel Peace Prize got won in our little town at least a little bit. It's quite amazing. Let's switch over to talking a little bit about ICANN and the impact that that is having and can potentially have on the entire nuclear weapons landscape in the world. It is not a campaign to ask the nine nuclear countries to get rid of their weapons. It's a campaign to get all of the countries that don't have nuclear weapons to agree to not get nuclear weapons. And then there are other provisions involved with it as well. Can you explain what those are and how those would mess up the nuclear countries? Sure. So the thing is with, with ICANN is that we're working in over 100 countries to raise the stigma against nuclear weapons. And most countries of the world have already rejected nuclear weapons. It's just this nine that are seem to be a bit stuck and seem to be kind of a, I don't know, it's a little bit of old thinking and that doesn't quite relate to the current world order. But the ICANN is working even in the nuclear armed countries to say, hey, we have a plan to get to no nuclear weapons in the world. We know the nuclear armed countries, they're clearly not ready yet. They haven't quite matured to the level of, of many others to be able to, to take a more realistic and pragmatic approach to their security but the other countries have. And so countries like Austria and Ireland, South Africa, are fully on board with this treaty because they recognize that there is no, no benefit to them and only risk from supporting nuclear weapons. What this means is that financial institutions in those countries have seen what happens with other weapons prohibitions and they get out of the, of the game when it comes to, to investing in companies that produce the weapons. Companies like Airbus, Airbus is a, is a Dutch registered company. Airbus has operations throughout Europe. Airbus is known for making airplanes. Airbus also makes missiles for the French nuclear arsenal. And what this does is it says that if, if Airbus, for example, when Germany signs on to the ban treaty, the operations that Airbus has within Germany can't be involved in the production of missiles for France or for anybody else because that's prohibited under the treaty. And that would change the landscape for France. France doesn't have a, another capability or that they have to move manufacturing capabilities. And that's, that's really important. And also, the treaty also has this great impact because it makes the question of, it challenges the assumption that nuclear weapons benefit anyone's security. 
and in fact puts the onus on those who have the weapons to prove it. You've been saying this for so long with no evidence. You've been you know, quite hysterical about your security concerns. No, be rational, be calm, prove that this is the only way forward. And if it is in fact the only way forward, why are you so united against other countries getting the same weapons? Why does North Korea use the same language as France in defending its, its decision to get nuclear weapons? You know, be a calm, rational actor in this field and not the hysterical nuclear armed countries that we've come to know. It seems that this program, the Treaty for the Prevention of Nuclear War and the countries that sign on to it would really signify a grassroots erosion of the ability of the nuclear industry to operate unimpeded. In other words, putting perhaps, if not a block in the road, a stone in the shoe, that they can't move forward as they planned on it. And here in the U.S., we are starting to see some changes, at least on the state and the local level. In January, a bill was introduced in the Massachusetts state legislature that would require the state's pension funds to divest from nuclear manufacturers. The city of Cambridge has already done so, and here in California, Ojai will not make any future investments in the makers or funders of nuclear weapons. Do you think that the best way for us to proceed is to work on the local grassroots level rather than going for the big guys in Washington, D.C. or the heads of whatever countries, people listening to this show in 123 countries that listen to it, um, not going after the top of the governmental food chain, but starting local is the path we need to follow? Well, I think it depends on where people are. So in the U.S., you know, one out of every eight Americans lives in California. So when the California state legislature passes a resolution calling on the U.S. federal government to endorse and embrace the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, that is significant. And that is a demonstration of the will of the people. Nuclear weapons are the opposite of democracy. They are the opposite of people's movements. And it's going to take people's movements being creative in the locations they are to get change. We just had today, which said Berlin, both the city of Berlin as well as the federal state of Berlin come on board and call on the German government to join this treaty. Oh, that's fabulous. I hadn't gotten that news yet. Yeah, and, and it's happening every day. There are new cities joining. There are new, there's new state resolutions being discussed. There are conversations happening. And the key thing is, nuclear weapons are an anachronism, and we can move past them, but we have to talk about them. And we have to talk about them not just with our friends that it's comfortable to talk about them with. We have to talk about them in other places. And reach out because I'll tell you, we ran a petition campaign a couple of years ago in the Netherlands. And what we found is that nine out of every 10 people we asked said, of course, we don't support nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are dumb. Wait, they're still a problem? I thought they were gone. Most people don't know. And as soon as they know, they think, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. This is a problem of the 80s. Let's, let's send it to the dustbin of history. That attitude and that emphasis and that enthusiasm is starting to catch like a wildfire throughout the world. And it will change the minds of those sitting in the high political offices. If you are friends with the head of state, by all means, call your buddy 
and tells him to get on board with this treaty. If, however, you are not friends with a head of state, think about other ways you can, you can help support this, this effort to make nuclear weapons history. That brings us to the practicalities. What are things that people on the ground can do and what tools do you have? Because the research is extensive and it is impeccable. Everything is footnoted. Everything is accurate in it because we can't, our side can't afford to make mistakes. What do you have available that we can use to support anything that we are saying or doing on the ground? Well, the first thing I would encourage your listeners to just sign up to our newsletter. We're constantly putting information out. It's at nuclearban.org. And there's tons of info there. Well, now, it depends, again, where people are. If you want to figure out how to make sure your personal finances are in no way connected to the companies that produce nuclear weapons, whether it be through your bank or through your pension investment or other things, um, we have checklists on our website for people to use. We just you know, quickly make, scan the website, see if your bank's listed, send them a message. We have tools you can directly send your bank a message. And a lot of people these days, myself included, use, um, do banking on our phones, right? Mobile banking is, is like the thing. And I encourage people all the time, pull out your phone, go to your banking app, and just send a message directly to your bank right now and just say, hey, are we in any way connected to companies that produce nuclear bombs? When you ask that question through your mobile app, through walking into your local bank branch, whatever it is, you're starting a chain reaction of the good kind. The person on the other end probably has no idea. So they're going to have to ask somebody, is going to have to ask somebody, is going to have to ask somebody. We saw a number of financial institutions get out of the, this type of investment because people started asking questions on their Facebook profiles. And there's this like, oh, that's not good. We can't have this. Oh, wait, wait, let's check. Let's check. <gasps> okay, well, let's get that. They, they divested first, and then they put into place a policy to make sure that they'll never have any kind of investments in, connected to nuclear weapon producers in the future. And it's part of their internal due diligence now. It wasn't a huge number of people that did this. It was three or four people that saw something in the newspaper, that saw a tweet, that heard something on the radio. And they took action because it truly is, as Margaret Mead said, it truly is a small handful of thoughtful and committed people that can change the world. And there are many people who would love the extra energy and attention. And the quick question, do we have anything to do with the nuclear bomb? If so, how can we avoid it? And we can, and we will. The brilliance of this program is that any individual can make an enormous difference simply by taking a few steps that are already brilliantly strategized and plotted out and framed as you have done, as the people with PACs have done, and I can as well. If you have any final thoughts to share with the listeners today, what would that be? I would ask your listeners to tell a friend. Each one can reach one and each one can teach one. And that is how we will get this change. And that is how we will be able to retire from working on nuclear weapon issues and put our energy into dealing with the new challenges that face a new century. Susie Snyder, you have been doing brilliant work 
I've been aware of your work since Helen Caldicott's conference, I believe it was five or six years ago. And the progress has been astonishing and breathtaking. I always report on any positive steps that we find out that have been taken by either PACS or ICANN on nuclear hot seat, because we've got to get our new good news from somewhere. And it seems to come inordinately from these two groups. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. It's always a great pleasure. And I really appreciate the opportunity today. And I appreciate you being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Susie Snyder of PAX Netherlands and Don't Bank on the Bomb. Don't you just love this woman's energy? We will have a link to Don't Bank on the Bomb where you can download their 2018 global report on the financing of nuclear weapons producers. Don't just download it and let it sit on your computer. Make certain that you send it to your bank, credit union, pension fund, and or financial advisors. As you heard in the interview, it really can make a difference. Activist shout-outs! Francis Crow is a 92-year-old, much-arrested, anti-nuclear and many other issues activist who is prominent in the battle to close Vermont Yankee. Now she's published a book, Finding My Radical Soul. It's available on Amazon, and we will have a link to it up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 412. There's a World Anti-Nuclear Forum being held in Madrid, from the end of May till June 3rd. If any listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat are attending, please let me know. And let's see what kind of a report we can put together from Nuclear Hot Seat special correspondents, uh, that's you, who are on site. And there's a new nuclear quote-unquote game out called the Nuclear Decision Game that you really should take a look at. The premise You receive information that the U.S. might be under nuclear attack. You have five minutes to ignore or respond to the threat. The clock is ticking. What do you do? This interactive game takes you through a series of nuclear decisions which confront policymakers and other Americans over the course of several years. Each decision relates to real-world policy issues that affect the level of global nuclear risk. You'll have access to factual information and advisors with different perspectives to help you navigate each decision. The game begins with a crisis scenario that represents some of the risks posed by current U.S. policies. After going through the subsequent decisions, you will encounter another crisis scenario that reflects the choices you've made throughout the game. The makers of it ask that you enjoy the game I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but certainly intrigued is the one that I brought to it. I just offer this word of caution. Do not start the nuclear decision game when you're rushed for time. It's a serious exercise with terrific information and well worth taking whatever time it needs. Of course, we'll have a direct link to it up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, episode 412. Here's today's final thought. Nothing. Absolutely nothing left. I am out of here. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 15, 2019. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from 
nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, beyond nuclear national, new york new york times, penlive.com, thegazette.com, newsweek, san luis obispo mothers for peace, tri-cityherald.com, thehill.com, pri.org, abc.net.au, fairwinds.org, that's fairwinds with an E, The Vintage News, USA Today, ahvalnews.com, sciencedaily.com, livescience.com, the nuclear apologist publication forbes.com, theecologist.org, interactive-live.pri.org, nonukes.nl, don'tbankonthebomb.com, the soul-dead cubicle drones who write press releases for World Nuclear News, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Thanks to listeners Pindar Demarsin in Turkey, Norma Field, Bill Smyrno, and Jim Torson elsewhere for their referrals to stories and support. And thanks to all of you for listening. Big shout out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world. We are in 123 countries on six continents, and we are counting. If you haven't already done so, go to the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page, like it, share it, respond to a post. If you leave a comment, I'll comment right back to you. You can also sign up for a weekly email delivery of Nuclear Hot Seat. You'll get it as soon as it posts. All you have to do is go to the website, nuclearhotseat.com, and look for the yellow opt-in box. Put in your first name, your email address. I promise we won't sell it. We won't bug you. But just put those two things in, and you will be in the loop to get one email a week giving you the link to Nuclear Hot Seat. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly, verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment, send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. We really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2019. Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that lies minimizing nuclear radiation's impact might make some people feel safe. But words don't change scientific facts. They just keep you from acting in your own best interests in face of a danger that you cannot ever escape. There you go. That's what we call a real nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.